You may be seated. Amen. And if you have your Bibles or have the bulletin, you can look. We're going to be in Mark chapter 10. And if you look on the front of the bulletin, we have two desires. Our desire is a church and then our desire for you. And our desire for you is that you experience the transforming power of the gospel for the glory of God and for your good. And since January 2020, we've, uh, we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew, and uh, I guess we're about halfway, we're moving a pretty slow clip, but we're going to pause that for uh, a little while, and I want to zero in really on that phrase, what does it mean to experience the transforming power of the Gospel? And who needs to experience it? How do you experience it? We want you to have an encounter with the living Lord when you come, but what does that look like? How do you experience it? You know, I think if we're all honest, the last few years have been hard. You know, hard on everyone. Psychologists say there's three things that if you have one of them in your life, it'll really fuel fear and anxiety. One of them is what ifs. Like if the what ifs start to take over your mind. So what if, what if I get sick? What if I lose my job? What if this party comes to power? What if I failed? What if she doesn't love me anymore? What if he doesn't come back? What ifs? I say another one is when you uh, come to the realization that there's, uh, you have an inability to control the things that are most important to you. An inability to control. And I think if there's anything life has taught us in the last several years is how little we actually control. And so fear is fueled by what ifs, is, full, is fueled by the realization of how little we control. And then third, they say it's, all, it's fueled by a loss of clarity on the consequences of your decisions. So can you think of a more succinct way to describe what everybody has been plunged into for years. You know, what ifs, inability to be in control, the loss of clarity. And when any of those are there, but all three of them collectively together, you can just move into kind of this fog, this darkness, this fog of unknowing. And everyone has been plunged into that. Every person on the planet is living there. We all have what-if questions. None of us is in control. No one has real clarity on the consequences of their decisions. So how do you deal with that? How do you dispel the darkness? How do you experience the power of the gospel in the midst of living under the shadow of difficulty, darkness, under the shadow of death? So that's what we're going to look at, especially this morning, but extend for weeks. And our story is in Mark 10, the story of Bartimaeus. And if you're going to experience the transforming power of the gospel, it will take you up in three different ways. You, there, there's things you have to know. You have to have, get clarity of mind. And then there's things you have to feel. It has to capture your heart. And then there's a certain way you have to live. It has to compel your life. So if we're going to experience the gospel's transforming power, then Christ's word has to bring clarity to our minds. It has to capture our heart and then compel our life. So that's what we're going to walk through. So if you have Mark in front of you or the paper or uh, the bulletin where you can see the outline, we're going to look for those three things. We're going to look first, let's get clarity in our minds to understand the story capture our hearts to enter in and then compel our lives so we can live it. So first, if we're going to have clarity of mind, first thing we got to do is just understand this story. If we're going to understand it, we got to see settings, character, action. So let's, I'm going to read the whole thing 
and then we'll cycle back. And one of the reasons I printed it out on this so you can see is this will kind of help you visually so you can see some of Mark's beautiful, short narrative kind of punch. And it kind of help uh, uh, so you can see visually what he's doing. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples in a great crowd... Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight, and he followed him on the way. All right, so first, if we're going to understand the story, let's get the context, need to get the, the context. And all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, put this as the, the, one of the paradigmatic stories that gives us the climax of Jesus' public ministry. So all of them, and what each of them does with this story, it's, it's unique and it's fascinating. So Matthew puts this story, he, he parallels it with the story of uh, James and John sending their mother to Jesus to ask, uh, you know, same question, what do you want me to do for you? I want when you come into your glory, have my son sit at your right and your left. And Matthew, very intentionally, we've seen from 16 to 20, this is Jesus' blueprint for how he's going to build his house. And, and Matthew's contrasting uh, that one pursuit of kind of power and prestige versus the real disciples' pursuit of recognizing that we're blind and we need mercy. And then Luke, really fascinating, uh, uh, links this story of um, Bartimaeus and Zacchaeus. And what's doing is Jesus goes through Jericho, he's showing them the scale, the social scale of the salvation that he's bringing. Somebody despised but on the top, somebody broken at the bottom, both experiencing salvation. But then what Mark does, and is so fascinating and beautiful, Mark sets up 13 different, you can call them supplicant stories. So there's a whole cycle of 13 different stories. There's snapshots of 13 different individuals who find themselves living under some aspect of the shadow of death. Their life somehow is a living death. And what's interesting is none of them are named except Bartimaeus. He's the only one that's named. And each one gives a unique picture about how sin is, is, is breaking us. And these 13 different, you kind of go through Mark. It'd be fascinating if you wanted to read it this week. You just go through and mark the stories. You know, you have all these different people. They are the powerless and the poor, the wounded and the weary. They are the broken and the bound, the man with the unclean spirit in the synagogue, in church. And then Peter's mother-in-law with her fever and the paralytic that has to come through the house. And Jairus' daughter who's on her deathbed. And the woman with the 12 years uh, sickness, flow of blood. And the demon-possessed man. There's 13 of them. And this is the, the culminating one. It's one they're all building up to. And you look at these stories and they cover the whole range of social class and spiritual conditions. 
and all of them are living under the shadow. And in every case for each of them, the current options for healing and hope have failed. The Jewish religion has failed them. The current political, Roman political structure has failed them. Their own socioeconomic resources have failed them. Their social status has failed them. In every case, they are helpless and hopeless, and they turn to Jesus. And by faith, they're made whole. And so here, Bartimaeus is the, 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 the climax of those 13 stories. And then you can even set it up even more as it starts. <clears throat> Mark's going to give us, it's as they came to Jericho and as he was leaving Jericho. So they're passing through Jericho. Remember, Jericho is the city after the walls came down in Joshua, a curse was placed on it, never to be rebuilt again, but it was. So this is a city under the curse. And yet, will mercy still be found there? And as they're on their way, they're passing through, Jesus has actually launched into uh, going to Jerusalem for his, his, the final week. Since the hour has come, Luke says he's turned his face and he is going towards Jerusalem. He is now entering into, about to start, the, the, uh, the most important week in the history of humanity. What happens this week, what he is about to accomplish is the single greatest act that's ever been accomplished on this planet. The most important, the most urgent. And he is on his way to Jerusalem. So it's a setting. Now look at the characters. He sets up the characters and he, that's Jesus, leaving Jericho and with his disciples in a great crowd. So what's so fascinating is you have these two characters, the disciples and the crowd, and again, they've, they've, they've merged, they've fused into one. The disciples are indistinguishable from the crowd, and that's not good for the disciples. So you have his disciples, the crowd, they're with him, they're walking, and then you have Bartimaeus. Now notice how Mark sets up Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. So it's interesting, Mark, very economical with words. He actually, Bartimaeus in Aramaic, bar means son, Timaeus. His name is son of Timaeus. So why does he tell us son of Timaeus who's the son of Timaeus? Kind of redundant. So you think, all right, why? Who's he talking to? You know, he's either talking to people who don't know Aramaic and need it clarified, or also, he could also be talking to people who know who Timaeus is. It's interesting. We won't pull on that thread, but just think and wonder, why does he name him? I've got a theory, actually, if you want to <laughs> buy me lunch, I'll share it with you. So Bartimaeus, and there, so that sets up the characters. Now notice, let's now launch into 47, the action. And when he heard, Bartimaeus, that Jesus of Nazareth, he, that it was Jesus now, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. So first he hears and then responds. There's no response if you don't first hear. You have to hear. He hears, and what does he hear? That it's Jesus of Nazareth. Now, he's not like Nathaniel, who when he hears Jesus from uh, Nazareth said, Nazareth, anything good come from there? He hears, and then he begins to cry. And notice what he cries out, Jesus, son of David. 
Now, this is a regal, exalted, messianic title. What's so interesting is nobody in Mark has made that connection yet. Now, this is really important in the Gospel of Matthew to make that connection, but this is, a, in essence, a Jewish way of saying Christ, the Messiah. And so somehow, from what Bartimaeus hears and knows, he can see. He's the first one in Mark who can really see what Jesus, who he is, and what he's doing. Now, it's a similar confession to Peter's confession when Peter says, you know, Jesus, who do, you, who do people say that I am? And then Peter says, you know, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus says, blessed are you. You know, uh, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. It was revealed from my father. But Bartimaeus has made the same confession. It makes you wonder, did he have supernatural insight? Is he just trying to think of the most exalted title he can, trying to get help? How does he know this? And then notice the crowd, notice their response. The disciples, the crowd, notice in verse 48, and many. You can translate, and they. You know, that's the undefinable uh, they. You know, we all use they. Like, oh, they, them, those people, they, they're the ones holding us down. It's the man up there. It's they. They become one. They rebuked him. And you, know, you can imagine. Uh, he probably would have been a familiar figure. They had seen him so many times, they stopped seeing him. They were blind to the needs of those right in front of them. And then you think, well, they're thinking, don't bother Jesus. Look, can't you see? We are important. We are with an important person. He's got places to go and he's got things to do. Stop annoying us. Nobody's got time to stop for you. And so they rebuke him. And kind of the cruel irony is because the disciples have melded into the crowd, they've actually become a hindrance for Jesus to accomplish what he came to do. He came to set the prisoners free and bring sight to the blind. And then notice those next words, or notice what he does. I love it. They are on him, telling him to be silent. I love the King James. They commandeth him to hold thy peace. But he doesn't hold his peace. He says, cries out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And then Jesus stopped. Jesus stops. All the things that he has to do can wait. He stops. Now notice why, why doesn't Jesus call him himself? And Jesus stopped and said, probably to the disciples, call him. Why didn't Jesus call him himself? I wonder, and then notice how the disciples, notice how they switched. The crowd has switched. The crowd's a fickle thing. It, it, it switches easily. If you live to placate it, you're up for a wild ride. And they called the blind man saying to him, take heart. Good news. Uh, we know we were just telling you to be quiet, but actually take heart. Get up. He is calling you. Take heart. Rise. He's calling you. And then notice the energy, the alacrity, and throwing off his cloak. He sprang up and he came. Nothing, he's going to allow no more hindrances. Nothing is going to be able to hold or weigh him down. And then standing before Jesus, he hears, what do you want me to do for you? Now, again, so fast, this is not the first time he's asked this question in this chapter. Uh, uh, James and John's mother has come to make a request of Jesus. He says, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? 
And then the blind man said, Rabbi. It's very interesting. Only the disciples have referred to him as rabbi. Those have been faithfully following him from the very beginning at this point. Has he been one of those? Has he been following the whole time? Or has he been stuck there waiting for Jesus to come? Rabbi, teacher, the one I want to follow. And he says, recover, recover. There's something that's been lost that he wants to get back. Recover. And then notice the beautiful irony. Jesus says, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed his way, him on the way. His way now becomes Jesus's way. <clears throat> so that's the story. And so if it's going to change you, first you've got to understand what's going on. But you can't stop there. It has to capture your heart. You have to enter into this story. If you're going to experience the power of the gospel, these stories aren't meant just to entertain. They're meant to transform. And the way they transform you is you enter into them. And you see he's not just addressing a blind beggar in the first century. He's addressing you. So now let's enter back into the story. And first, let's just imagine you're one of the people in the crowd. You're one of the disciples. You're walking along and you feel all of the pent-up energy and the anticipation. And for years, you've been wondering and waiting and hoping something. And you just know, you don't know how you know, but you just know something is different now. There's a unique look in his face and his gaze. And you've been around massive crowds. There's probably 150,000 people coming to Jerusalem right now. You've been around massive crowds when there's this energy and electricity, even though you're not sure what, turmoil, anticipation, and you're, you're swept up and you're going, you're focused. And then you hear the sound of this beggar, this annoying, obnoxious beggar who's screaming, son of David, have mercy on me. And you get so annoyed. You're like, stop yelling. Don't you know we are important? We have places to go. Stop yelling and being such an, a nuisance. Nobody's got time for what you need. He is busy. We are important. How often do you go through life assuming that you are busy and you are important? Here's the things we're doing. This is busy. This is important. Who's damaged in how we run over them through life or just pass by them? The irony of the story is who's the real blind ones? Who's really blind? Do you really see the people around you as you go through the needs, the opportunities? So imagine you're in their crowd. Or imagine you're Bartimaeus, or you're one like him. You're sitting next to him. You know, both uh, Luke and Matthew chose those two, so only one gets named, so there's at least another one. And so you take your seat next to Bartimaeus, and you can empathize because you know what it's like to feel helpless. You know what it's like to feel hopeless. You know what it's like to feel all you can do is you can just wait, and you're waiting, wishing hoping and you hear the crowd you can't see it but you hear it and you begin to feel something is unique something is happening you feel the energy and you begin to ask and you hear that name you hear the name of Jesus and hope springs in your your heart you've heard stories You've heard stories about how he comes and he helps people just like you. And in that moment, this hope flares. 
Do you know what it's like to have a little spark of hope in the midst of the darkness? Something comes and just just a little spark of hope and all the years of hurt and pain and loss, they come flooding out. And notice how they come flooding out in a cry. And what do you cry for? Mercy. Mercy. You're too desperate not uh, to care what other people think about. You can feel that other people are looking at you and scolding and scoffing and rebuking, but you don't care. You're too desperate. Have you ever been there where you're too desperate to care what people are looking and thinking and saying? And then he stops. Something happens and the whole world stops. And he says, call him, come, and you're called. He summons you. And even when the whole world stops, a ray of light breaks in. He's calling you, but he's calling you to himself. And so you come, but you actually won't know he's calling you unless you can hear his voice. Can you hear him? Can the voice break through all the noise in the world? You know, every Sunday, one of the things we do is we have a call to worship where God is summoning his call to enter in his presence to worship and a call to his table to fellowship. Can you hear the call? And then throwing off all that hinders, everything that holds him down. Nothing is going to keep me from getting to him. Are you willing to throw it off? Whatever might be holding you back, whatever might be keeping you from freedom, keeping you from life, he throws it off, and then he goes, and then notice standing in front of Jesus. Here's the question. What do you want me to do for you? Now imagine you're there. You're standing in front of Jesus, and you hear him say, the whole world has stopped. The crowd has dissolved, and it's just you and him. And he says, what do you want me to do for you? Take a moment and just think. Kids, you stand before Jesus and he asks, what do you want me to do for you? Teenagers, what do you say? Adults, does something instantly come to mind? Or maybe you think, well, I don't know. Maybe if you can't think of anything, maybe that's a sign that you've gone numb. What comes to mind? What if he says it breaks down in different roles? What do you want me to do for you as a husband, as a father, as a wife, as a mother, as a friend, as a son, as a daughter? What do you want me to do for your family? What do you say? What do you want me to do for your, your vocation, your mission in life, the things you do? What do you want me to do? What do you say? Heal me. Heal her. Bring him back. Set him free, direct me, calm me, give me rest, give me purpose, give me peace, clarify my mind, capture my heart, help me walk into this lunchroom and not be embarrassed. Help me look into the mirror and not feel ashamed. What do you want me to do for you? And then I wonder if Timaeus was there and he asked him, what do you think he would say? What do you want me to do for your son? Or if his mother was there, what do you think she'd say? What do you want me to do for him? What would you say? 
Then notice recover. Help me, I want to recover. Maybe something needs to be recovered, something that's been lost, something you need to get back. Help me recover a sense of my calling, the joy of your salvation, the clarity of mission, the joy of this relationship. Help me to recover something. And then notice what he wants to recover. I need to see. The problem is right now I can't see. The reason why every one of, or at least the first three gospel writers put this as the culminating miracle in Jesus's earthly ministry is recognizing this is the core problem that we all have. We're all blind and we can't see. This is the great miracle. Help me to see. What do we need to see? Help me see the blessings all around me, the beauty all around me. Help me to see the path forward through the darkness, through the fears. Help me to see the wonders of your law. Help me to see the wonders of your love. Help me to see, see the opportunities I have, the graces I've been given. Help me to see the evidences of your power, evidences of your presence. Help me to see. If he was in front of you now, what would you say? Help me. I need to see. What, it is, what is it, do you think, you're not seeing? So if we're going to experience the power of the gospel, it's got to clarify our mind, and it's got to capture our heart as we stand before him, and then it's got to compel our life. Notice you'll never experience his power, like Bartimaeus, in, in some ways, if you don't do the things that he did. So how can it compel you? couple things you'll need to do. Notice uh, you have to place yourself along the way that he's chosen to walk. No matter how much he desired to see Jesus, if he would have set up shop in another town in Samaria, he wouldn't have seen him. And Jesus has chosen. There's ordinary means of grace, and he's chosen. There's certain means by which his grace flows to us. Worship is one. His word is one. Prayer is one. The people of God, when they get together with word and spirit, that's the places where he's chosen to be. When two or more of you are gathered in my name, that's where I am. So you have to place yourself on the way. And then you have to cry out. Notice, I'm so impressed by how, I don't even know what the word is. Unhindered uh, Bartimaeus is. He does not care in the healthiest sense what the people think about him. And if you're going to experience, you can't sit and sulk, you can't descend into silence, and you can't stay isolated. He's going to cry out. And then notice he comes when he calls. Throws all off everything that's holding him back. Holding him, keeping him from following him, from loving him. So he can walk in freedom. Throws it off. And I love the disciples' threefold admonition to them. In one sense, this is our calling as ministers of the gospel to say, take heart, rise. He is calling you. Hear it. Take heart, rise. He is calling you. And those he calls, he cures. Take heart, rise. He's calling you. And then your way must become his way. You go your way, his way becomes our way. Bartimaeus doesn't then leave and just start skipping around and say, thanks, peace out, that was awesome, now I'm going back. He then follows him along the way. I want to give the last word to Clement of Alexandria, second century preacher who uh, came out of Alexandria, born in 150. Uh, Mark, after Mark, 
Tracy Stafter Mark was with Paul in Rome and then went to Northern Africa and built, set up a catechetical school in Alexandria that became one of the uh, educational centers of, of the empire. And Clement was one of the great uh, kind of scholars, people who, who came out of that school. And one of the reasons, well, I'll give away why, so you won't have to take me to lunch. One of the reasons why I think Timaeus is named is because he becomes one of the patrons of that school and they know him. And uh, Clement became, grew out of that school and this was his favorite passage. And uh, the reason why it was his favorite passage is because I think he knew the, they, the family, they knew the people involved. And listen to him as he preaches about it. And now he goes back and forth between talking to his congregation and then talking to Jesus. So I'll try and help you. But the commandment of the Lord shines clearly, enlightening the eyes. Receive Christ. Receive power to see. Receive your light that you may plainly recognize both God and man more delightful than gold and precious stones, more desirable than honey and the honeycomb is the word that has enlightened us. How could he not be so desirable who illuminated minds buried in darkness and has endowed with clear vision the light-bearing eyes of the soul? And then now he starts talking to Jesus and starts singing to Jesus in his sermon. Sing his praises then, Lord, and make known to me your Father who is God. Your word will save me. It's your song that instructs me. I have gone astray in my search for God, but now you light my path. Lord, I find God through you and receive the Father from you. I become co-heir with you since you are not ashamed to own me as your brother. And then now he starts telling the congregation again, let us then shake off all this forgetfulness of truth. Let us shake off all the midst of ignorance and darkness that dims our eyes and contemplate the true God after first rising the song of praise to him. All hail, O light, for upon us buried in darkness, imprisoned in the shadow of death, a heavenly light has shone, a light of clarity surpassing the sun and of a sweetness that exceeds any other earthly light. Shake off the darkness. I don't know where, is it Taylor Swift, the inspiration for Shake It Off came from, but could be Clement of Alexandria's song on Mark 10. But whether it is or not, that's our call, those who are in the darkness to shake it off and come to him, come to him. So now as we come, he issues his call in the Lord's Supper. And this is our weekly reminder that he has come and calls us into his presence. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. And God, he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would come to him will find life. They won't perish. And so we come. And as we come, I want to issue the same call that the disciples issued to Bartimaeus. Take heart, rise. He's calling you. On the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he says, this bread represents my body. My body will be broken so yours can be made whole. Come and eat in remembrance of me. Then he took the cup. He said, this cup represents my blood that's shed for the forgiveness of sins. This is the pathway back in. This is what it's cost so that you can come into my presence. Take in remembrance of me.